Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. I'm joined today by senior writer and Nobel laureate Andrew Ferguson. Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? Oh, wait, wait. No, I, I'm mistaken on that. You didn't win a Nobel Prize in economics. You wrote about someone who... Oh, shoot. I was hoping that that wasn't a mistake. <laughs> so you wrote back in 2010 uh, a seminal work called Nudge, Nudge, Wink, Wink about the behavioral economics trend of the time led by someone named Richard Thaler who now is Nobel laureate Richard Thaler, or will be as soon as the ceremony happens. Was it, was it just a matter of time before the Nobels uh, gave him a prize? I think so. Uh, the, he's sort of considered, along with um, Daniel Kahneman, uh, to be the father of what's called behavioral economics. And it's over the last 12, 15 years Behavioral economics has become the hottest fad in all of um, social science, really. And Thaler, as Kahneman, has already won his Nobel. Um, so it was sort of just a matter of time before Thaler got his. How does behavioral economics differ from the preceding uh, standard of rational choice economics? Right. Well, well, neoclassical economics or rational choice economics are not exactly the same thing, but close enough. Uh, take as their basic assumption that human beings are rational when it comes to determining their own well-being, particularly in, in areas like finance and health. That's the homo economicus is the old phrase for it, um, economic man. Uh, now, it's, behavioral economic, uh, economists will tell you that this is sort of a hard and fast rule of neoclassical economics. In fact, it's not. Nobody actually thinks that everybody who does something all day long, and the countless decisions we make are purely rational, gauged by our own self-interest. And that People don't really do that. What it is is a kind of a starting point uh, for economic thinking and theorizing. The behavioral Economists, on the other hand, say that, in fact, man is irrational. Human beings are irrational, but they are irrational in a way that can be predicted. And so if you can sort of shape the kinds of um, choices that people face in their everyday lives, you can kind of gently push them in one way or another, you steer them away from the irrational decisions and towards something more rational. Thus, the title of the book that... Uh that Thaler wrote with Cass Sunstein, fellow University of Chicago behavioral economist, Nudge. Nudge, that's exactly right. They, they, it, again, Thaler is an extremely appealing writer. He has a very nice light touch. He can be very funny. And he's great at thinking up these um, catchy phrases. And the, the most famous one is Nudge. And that's something, let's say, for example, that you've got a problem with kids eating too much lousy food in the uh, cafeteria. Well, behavioral economics will tell you what you do is you take the lousy food, the Boston cream pie, and you put that way in the back of the shelf where the kids can go by in the cafeteria line, and you put an apple or an orange right up front. And because it's right in front of their faces, the kids will do the rational thing, or not really a rational thing, but they'll do the healthy thing because what they wanted to do was irrational, which is take the Boston cream pie. But the people who are nudging him have put the apple 
right up front. So and, he which takes raises the, apple. the question: uh, the people committed to this nudge methodology have they ever had children? <laughs> I mean, I can tell you that if I took in the refrigerator at home and I took a couple of Gatorades and put them at the back of the fridge and then lined eye level for my son. Um, skim milk and kale juice. <laughs> right. He okay. would hone in on the Gatorade so damn fast. Right, right. Well, um, you just have to nudge him a little harder. Sometimes you have to nudge him upside the head. For all its claims to be revealing deep secrets of how people actually act, that as you point out in your article, they're not actually basing these observations on how people actually behave in real situations, but rather so much of it is built on the phony contrived circumstances of a college psychology lab where people right. are being given things to fill out and presented with images to see if the image they're presented with changes how they fill out the forms, all of these contrivances that go into social psychology research these days. Right. And uh, th that's the Achilles heel of behavioral economics as Thaler uh, conceived it. It's, it's essentially a parasitic discipline. It feeds off of the findings of social psychology, cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology. Uh, and these findings especially over the last few years, have become increasingly um, suspect because there is a there are many built-in biases in the way these uh, experiments are conducted. And a lot of the sort of results that they have, the conclusions that they reach about how humans behave and why they behave the way they do, are really based on very flimsy evidence. Usually, as you say, one guy gets a bunch of psychology students, puts them in a room, has them fill out forms or tap on a computer screen. Then they take the data, they crunch it, they do a statistical analysis, and they say, hey, we have just discovered X, Y, and Z. Then a guy like Thaler comes along and sort of swallows that hole and will take that and then try and devise some kind of economic theory behind it. But it's really the, the main thing about it is it's behavioral economics can only be as good as the behavioral social science behind it. And, um, you know, otherwise it's garbage in, garbage out. What we're starting to realize now about the social science behind it is that it's pretty much garbage. Well, and it's, it's cumulative garbage. You have, you know, one study that uh, is contentious, but once it becomes part of the catalog of accepted studies, nobody is going back and challenging what was perhaps a very contentious argument in the first place. And then you get layered on top of that a new study that makes a further contentious claim, and then a study that gets layered on top of that. Um, if you pull out the original a contentious claim, all of it comes tumbling down. Yes. We've seen a lot of that happen. Again, this is the 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 House of Cards has started collapsing a, a couple of years ago when uh, some very brave uh, social psychologists took a hundred sort of seminal papers uh, that had been widely cited and used, just as you say, as sort of the building blocks of larger social psychology research. They took those experiments, and as scientists should do, they tried to reproduce them to make sure that the conclusions were sustainable. Well, they found that around 35, 37 of the 100 studies that they did were actually reproducible in the way that a scientist would demand. The rest of them had 
serious methodological problems and could not be replicated. Now, that doesn't mean that they're untrue. It means that they're much, much flimsier than the scientists themselves want to admit. And therefore, somebody like Thaler should be much, much more skeptical when he takes these conclusions and builds theories on them. And especially if the work you're doing relies on more than one such study, if you've got them layered, odds are at least one or more in it is going to, once you get even two in place, you've got basically straight odds that at least one of them is wrong. Right. And, you know, there are several examples of this now. There's one that, uh, a phenomenon that um, Thaler particularly likes, which is called priming, which is the um, technique of sort of, uh, again, nudging the the subjects of the experiment in these social psychology experiments in a certain way by suggesting, for example, if um, you confront them with a bunch of words suggestive of old age, you know, Florida, sclerosis, arthritis, and all that stuff, the subjects then will, over the next couple of minutes, respond as if they themselves were older. Now, this is called priming, um, and it's used in a number of different contexts, and it's one of the building blocks, as we were saying before, of social psychology uh, research. Well, it turns out that priming actually is a much, much more dubious um, conclusion to draw from the kinds of flimsy experiments that uh, were used to supposedly prove it. Yet priming has become a building block on which countless other studies have been done. Experiments have been designed on the assumption that priming happens always and everywhere, when in fact we know for certain it doesn't happen always and everywhere, and it may not happen much at all. One of the basic things, and you bring this up in in Nudge, Nudge, Wink, Wink, this piece that you wrote about Thaler and the rest of the behavioral econ crowd back in 2010. You were on early on to this. You, at the end of the piece, get around to what I think is one of the most profound issues and concerns to have about behavioral economics, which is at least with classical liberal economics, rational choice theory, the assumption, whether it's true or not, that people are rational beings treats those people with a fundamental dignity and respect. It's um, it's almost sort of a Kantian philosophical point of view that people, because of their rationality, must be treated with dignity. Once you take that away and you start saying people aren't rational, then you free yourself up to behave in a much more, uh, well, you, you open yourself up to have much less respect for people and less respect for their freedom once you've taken away an an assumption of their rationality. And as you suggest in the piece, it's worth making the assumption of rationality even if we know it's a fudge because it has good results in the freedom department. Right. And and it's sort of an act of democratic deference. You know, I mean, we... Sure, we can all criticize each other that we're doing stupid things all the time, but as, certainly as a matter of public policy, we have to have the assumption that we're all citizens. We all have some kind of basis for doing what we're doing. Otherwise, you, as you say, you really start to go down a road in which people become items to be manipulated because we hear in the behavioral economics 
departments know exactly what you're doing wrong and how we should affect you to do something that we all think is right. That's not really a democratic impulse. It's a little bit like um, homo economicus is a little bit like the uh, presumption of innocence in a, in a trial. You know, most people who go to trial aren't innocent. It's just a fact. They aren't. And um, But the whole legal system is premised on the assumption that you have to assume that a person is innocent until he's proven guilty. That is simply the way, that is the deference that we owe one another as citizens. And I would argue that the making of economic policy has exactly the same sort of structure. We have to assume that one another is rational. Andy, thanks so much for joining us on the Daily Standard podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. Support for the Daily Standard podcast comes from Upside. Use Upside for business travel, and you'll find that Upside has the absolute best available prices for flights, hotels, and rental cars. Upside will reward you with a gift card to places like Amazon.com every time you buy a business trip. And then there's the amazing six-star treatment you'll get from Upside's customer service specialists. They call themselves navigators. Upside navigators go above and beyond for business travelers. They are instantly accessible 24-7 by voice, chat, email, or message on the Upside app, even reaching out to you with useful info to help you avoid a problem before it happens. Start your Upside six-star treatment right now. Go to Upside.com and use the code STANDARD, and you'll get a minimum $100 gift card to Amazon.com. That's code STANDARD for a minimum $100 gift card to Amazon.com when you buy your next business trip at Upside.com. Upside.com, you deserve a better business trip. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. That's it for today's Daily Standard podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.